Good morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask you to quiet our minds and take from us all distractions that would keep us from hearing your word. As we read these words written long ago about events that happened a great deal of time ago, uh, we ask that you might enable us to see your truth, to live by it, to honour your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, in a flawed world, most of us seem to retain some sense of justice. We at least seem uh, to recognise pretty quickly when we're not being treated justly. In this last week, I've been lobbied again to support a Bill of Rights for Australia, which I'm told, uh, if constructed uh, properly, will ensure that each one of us is treated justly. The law is there for our protection, to constrain wickedness and to promote justice, to make sure everyone gets a fair go, to prevent discrimination and mistreatment. But will it work? Is the law enough? Even the best constructed law. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for the rule of law. I'd rather live in a land where the law is respected and justice is dispensed with equity than in a land where it's everyone for themselves and the survival of the fittest. But reliance on the law and the law alone is naive. The law is not enough. Centuries of experience have shown us that the law won't stop international rivalry. It won't stop murder. It won't stop greed and corruption. And we, of all people, should know. We who have heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus should know. For even God's law is not the final answer. It was never designed to be so. We know that we need something more than law, something more than simple justice. For simple justice would have brought Adam and Eve to an immediate end when they rebelled in the garden. And simple justice would have wiped Cain from the face of the earth after he murdered his brother Abel. Simple justice would have rid the world of everyone, every human being, in Noah's time. Simple justice would have left the complaining people of Israel to rot in the wilderness. And simple justice would have destroyed not only the kingdom and the temple, but the entire population as well after centuries of unfaithfulness and idolatry. No, if there is to be a future, more than simple justice, more than the law is needed. Last week when uh, we took our first look at the book of Ruth, that little book that connects us at one end with the chaos of the book of Judges and at the other with the hope associated with the kingship of David, we saw its first lesson is that God is involved even when it does not seem all that obvious. Its second lesson is here for us in the chapter we look at this morning and it concerns our need for grace. For you see, the law cannot secure our future. And God acts towards us with grace. So take a journey with me through the second chapter, the second act in the story of Ruth. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, 
Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favour. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favour in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favour in your eyes, my Lord. For you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out from some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she'd gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she'd gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. (coughs) Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they are finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. If the first act of this story confronted us with enduring loss... Uh, the loss of food, of a country and a home, the loss of three husbands, the loss of hope, and finally, even the loss of Naomi's name. The second act presents us with fullness. 
a harvest, a huge haul from gleaning, the favour of a wealthy man, the prospect of a steady provision of food through, the en- through to the end of the harvest, plenty of barley in the house of bread that year. But Naomi is still a widow and Ruth is still a foreigner. That keeps being mentioned with monotonous regularity. The law might have provided them with a means to survive the ancient command of Leviticus 23. When you reap up the the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. That might all be in place, but the harvest will not go on forever. And what will happen then? There is bread for today, but what about the tomorrows that stretch out ahead of them? Well, we're given a clue in the very first verse of this second chapter. In chapter 1, all the men had died. The man of Bethlehem in Judah named Elimelech and his two sons. Last week's episode centred on the women left behind by those men. But now we learn that there's still another man to be reckoned with a relative of Elimelech's. We're told that twice in verse 1 and in verse 3. This man's not just some random. He's part of the family. And it becomes clear he's a man of standing, a man of influence, a man of courage. He owns land. And the entire story will make clear he's a righteous man, a man of moral integrity. And perhaps you could just let yourself go for a minute. You could imagine where this is going to lead. Think of the possibilities. Here's someone who could undo the damage that has been done, who might do something about their situation. But as soon as he is introduced, we are brought down to earth with a thud by the very next words. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, and Ruth the Moabite. There is one stubborn fact that is bound to get in the way of a happy ending. This little tag, the Moabite, will explode every moment of hope. You see, the law might provide a way out of the emptiness for an Israelite widow. The law provided in Deuteronomy 25 for an Israelite widow to be married to a close relative of her dead husband to raise up descendants for her husband to keep his name and inheritance alive. But Ruth was no Israelite widow. That's what we're reminded of immediately and repeatedly in this chapter. Ruth is a Moabite. The law of Deuteronomy 25 doesn't apply to her. But the law of Leviticus 23 does. She is poor, she's fatherless, she's a foreigner living in the land, so she can glean in the fields and hope that she finds enough to live on. But she can't expect more than that. She has no rights that she can plead in the midst of this. She can't even be sure when she turns up at the field that those who own it will abide by the law of Leviticus 23. So she'll take what she can get. They have to eat after all. And it will mean humbling herself. It will mean admitting that she is one of the poor, one of the destitute, one of the vulnerable... It will mean seeking someone's goodwill, their favour, what in a previous generation we might have called their charity. And that's what she does. 
and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Come on. As it turned out, as it just so happened, she just so happened to find herself in the field of the one man mentioned at the beginning of this chapter. And once again, we're reminded that something else is going on. There's more to this story than meets the eye. Someone is guiding these events and overseeing all the details. Well, almost all the action happens in the middle scene in this chapter, I'm sure you noticed. Ruth has been gleaning in Boaz's part of the field, but she doesn't know it's Boaz's part of the field, and she doesn't know of his relation to Naomi. She'd begun early in the day when Boaz was in Bethlehem. She'd asked permission of those overseeing the harvest for their master, and she'd begun. When Boaz arrives, he sees this strange woman gleaning in his part of the field. So he asks about her. Perhaps it was just a businessman's inquiry, what's going on here? Though there are a few hints that something more is going on. In verse 5, the question he asks might even sound condescending to us, almost insulting, certainly not politically correct, because he doesn't ask who she is, but whose she is. To whom does this woman belong? See, Boaz is interested in finding out more about her than just her name. But once again, the stubborn fact gets in the way. Just when you might entertain the possibility of some interest and a burgeoning relationship, we're told again she's the Moabite girl. Do you really want to know who she is, Boaz? She's off limits. She's entirely unsuitable. She belongs to the gods of Moab. She belongs to Chemosh. And yet that's not everything about her and perhaps not the most important thing about her. She's the one they've all been talking about. She's the one who came back with Naomi. She's the one who left everything and bound herself to her mother-in-law and her future. She's the one all the fuss is about. And she's been slogging it out there in the barley field all day, finding whatever she could that was left behind after, after the reapers had been through. But it's not her diligence that motivates Boaz to do what he does next. He has already heard about her and what she has done for Naomi. And he's grateful as a member of the family. He sees it as remarkable. She has gone beyond what anyone could expect. But he also recognises that what she has done flows out of something even more basic and even more remarkable. And this is more than simply another destitute refugee seeking a means to survive. Take a look at what he says in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, she wasn't Chemosh's after all. Not anymore. And he knew that. He'd heard that. Ruth couldn't have known it at the time, but her great-grandson would one day write a psalm that picked up the image Boaz used to describe what had happened to her. In Psalm 57, particularly appropriate, David wrote, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. And that's what Ruth had done. Taken refuge in the Lord, trusted him to keep her safe. And seeing that, understanding that, Boaz decides 
to go beyond the law. That's the moment he begins himself to become an agent of God's grace. You see, the law might require him to let her glean, but that's all. He reaches out to her, offers her a measure of security she could not have expected. She doesn't need to go from one part of the field to another, hoping she can scrape together enough to survive. Stay here. There's a place for you here. Follow my young women and avail yourself of the refreshment provided for them. Ruth herself points out how unexpected all this is as she draws attention to the fact that she's a foreigner in verse 10 and doesn't even have the status of his most menial maidservant in verse 13. She has no call on him, no right she can claim. The law won't give her what she needs to have a future. She must rely on mercy. She must rely on grace and even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Boaz invites her to the table, includes her as part of his company. He sits her beside the reapers. She eats her fill of bread dipped in wine and roasted grain. This is more than law. This is grace. And quietly, without her knowledge, he instructs his reapers to pull out great hunks of the harvest and leave them for her to glean. As one writer puts it, Boaz actually stacks the deck in Ruth's favour. Most of those who gleaned in the harvest took home very little. It was in the reaper's interest to make sure as much as possible was collected for the owner of the field. But Boaz is determined that Ruth will return with evidence of the grace that she's received in her hands. At the end of the day, when she's beaten out what she'd gleaned, it comes to about an ephah probably around 12 kilograms, an extraordinary large haul for a day of gleaning in the fields. Here is tangible evidence that she's found favour, that she's a recipient of grace. God hadn't just dealt with Ruth and through her Naomi, through the simple provisions of the law. I mean, there was nothing wrong with the law. The provisions for the poor and the sojourner were remarkable in the ancient world, and a demonstration of God's loving care. Yet the law couldn't undo the tragedy that had engulfed Ruth's life and Naomi's. It could not provide certainty for the future. Something more was needed. And Naomi had an inkling of that something when she saw the size of the haul that Ruth brought home after just one day in the field. Obviously something had happened. You don't come home with this much and with food on top of that, from just gleaning in the field, where on earth did you go? How on earth did this happen? Where did you get all this? And so Ruth tells her what happened. The story is staggering in itself, but then she reveals the name of the man in whose sight she had found favour, Boaz. And friends, that's the moment when everything changes for Naomi. She'd come back, you might remember, at the end of chapter 1, bitter. She'd not wanted the women of the town to call her Naomi. But when she sees what Ruth has brought home, and when she hears the name of the man behind all this, she recognises the hand of God at work. Yes, it had been Boaz who had been kind to Ruth. He treated Ruth with extraordinary favour. 
and his own faithfulness to the Lord and to his family is clear from what he did, but Naomi recognises that in this kindness and through that kindness, God has shown his kindness and that he has not forsaken the living, Ruth and herself, or the dead, her husband and her sons. Naomi mentions the law of redemption in Leviticus 25. Perhaps there is hope after all. And yet once again, immediately we, read, we who read the story are reminded of the facts, the troublesome interfering facts, the facts that complicate the picture and cast a cloud over any such hope. In the verse immediately following Naomi's declaration of praise and mention of redemption, we hear again, Ruth the Moabite said. And so at the end of the chapter, life still hangs in the balance. And we're yet to see how far grace will go. But friends, what this chapter presses upon us is that the law is not enough. And God himself is not satisfied with law. In the unfolding of his plan to rescue a people for himself, extravagant grace is evident time and time again. Think of Abraham, that wandering Aramean, whose meandering in an idolatrous land was interrupted by the call of God who promised him more than he could ever have imagined. Think of Israel, that rebellious, stubborn people to whom God gave a land and a king and who placed his name in the temple in Jerusalem. Abraham was never perfect and the law on its own terms stood against him rather than for him. He was only saved by God's initiative and by God's grace. Israel failed time and again and God's law stood as a testimony against them. Only by God's gracious commitment, his covenant promises, could there be any future for Israel. And then there's us. God's holy and righteous and good law is not enough to save us. It was never meant to be. We cannot rely on our performance under the law. We cannot rely upon the coercive power of the law to protect us and secure our future. We are all entirely dependent on grace. God's undeserved favour at a personal level, at a national level, at an international level. The law is not enough. It's not the answer to our uncertainties and it's not the final answer to our twistedness. So aren't you glad that God has extended to us a grace that goes beyond the law? We can't then afford to rely upon the law. And we need to repent if that's what we've in fact been doing. We mustn't presume on grace, of course. That's a warning for another time. But we mustn't rely on law either. For ourselves or in how we treat each other. Not if we know the one to whom the entire story of Ruth was pointing. Not, not the great-grandson of Ruth, David, but his even greater son the one who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The first lesson of the book of Ruth, 
God is at work, even when it's not obvious, even when we can't see clearly. It's second lesson. God's work advances at every level, not by law, but by grace. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we sit in wonder at the fact that we are recipients of grace. Pictured in miniature in the life of Ruth in this part of your word, expounded extravagantly in the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus who came to save us. None of us deserve mercy. The law stands against us but your grace has taken hold of us and made us your own. So will you help us to rejoice in grace and to proclaim grace and to treat one another with grace and as recipients of grace so that we might give you the glory that is your due and point all those around us to Jesus in whose name we pray.